Little Wars FM fans, welcome back to part two of our discussion on how to design or not design a great tabletop wargaming campaign. In part one, I was joined by Miles and Tony, and we talked about linear campaigns. And today, Miles and Tony are back, and we're going to talk about map-based campaigns. Gentlemen, good to see you again. Good to see you as well, sir. Always good to be here, Greg. So I am excited for this discussion, actually more so than the linear-based campaigns, because I think I tipped my hand in our previous podcast by admitting that as a as a war gamer, as a player, I really prefer the open sandbox of a map-based campaign because you know, I think every war gamer's dream is that you know they're going to be a brilliant operational strategist and they're going to outmaneuver their enemy and deliver a crushing blow, which you you can't really do in a predefined ladder campaign where everything is kind of already set out for you. But in a map-based campaign, anything goes. I mean, you you really do have a lot more freedom. Uh, so I think it just opens up way more, way more creative uh, outlets to play. And we want to talk today about a number of campaigns that we have run in the club over many, many years. And Tony, I would love to kick it off with you because as one of the original members of the club, you were around for the notorious and epic disaster that was our first ever map-based campaign in the club. So uh, that was predating Miles's time, so he has no idea about this implosion. Uh, so <laughs> why don't you tell everybody what <laughs> what that was all about and uh, and what your memories are of that campaign? Because it goes back many years. It does indeed, and we probably ought to at least briefly touch on the other campaign that was going on about that same time, the old trousers Napoleonic campaign. Oh yes. Which yes. I was not party to. Um, I was just a sort of hangers on camp follower for that. But to the point we did, or rather you had tried to run a DBA crusades campaign. And it wasn't really a sandbox camp uh, sandbox map in that it was point movement it was from city to city you couldn't just randomly wander about the map you had to go from point a to point b to get to point c or d or wherever you were headed um and we didn't finish it we did a few turns and then it just uh it, it, it evaporated and I was thinking about that today because we're going to be podcasting today. And it occurred to me that a couple of things happened there that I think ultimately caused the demise of that campaign. One, it was launched before most of us had actually painted the armies. Um, we're going to do this campaign and Greg has a map and we're going to start it and we're going to and everybody is furiously scrambling to paint. I know it's a DBA army. It's 12 stands, but still. The campaign was underway, and most of us had armies in primer. Um, I think my first battle in the campaign was fought with um, unpainted figures. S sadly, it was a a black day on the club's good name. <laughs> um, I think that that starting it before everybody was fully engaged probably didn't help the situation. The other thing I recall, and correct me if I'm remembering this wrong, but wiping out your enemies was like the one and only thing um, 
was pretty much defeat all your enemies. And so everybody immediately started just attacking their nearest neighbors. Um, there was no, for lack of a better term, there was no strategic planning was everybody here is your enemy. There's an enemy that's one move, one March move away from you um, because it was point based it, because it was point to point movement. So immediately you attack the guy next to you. And if you were lucky, the guy over here who was also adjacent to that person would see an opportunity and he would attack. And that would be the, the closest thing we had to an alliance. And, and I think that um, ultimately, like I said, we got a few turns in uh, a couple people got their armies dinged up pretty badly. Um, and interest kind of fell down off, dropped away on the whole thing. Is that, is that sum it up? I think that, Pretty much sums it up, and uh, as you alluded to at the start of your uh, your narrative, there it was my fault. Uh, I I was the one. Oh who, no no! I designed that campaign, and uh, it was the first campaign that I had ever imagined designing. Uh, and I made a ton of mistakes in that design. I think the biggest one, which you mentioned, is that everybody started right on top of each other. The map was too small. There weren't that many movement nodes around the map. And I I don't know if you remember how many players we had, but there were like, I can remember at least seven people. There oh, yeah, may have been like more than eight seven. people. Yeah. And so we're all crammed on this little map that didn't have that many movement nodes. So there was really nowhere to expand or move except immediately attack the guy next to you. And there was no balancing mechanic for what happened after you beat that guy's army. It was DBA. So like, you know, you have 12 stands in your army and... I forget exactly how it was written, but it was like, yeah, if you lost the battle, you you suffer, you know, whatever. You lose two stands or three stands out of your army. Well, then there really isn't going to be a second battle. Like <laughs> in DBA, if you only have 12 stands and you, you got your ass kicked in the first battle and you go into the next one with nine stands, well, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get your ass kicked in the next battle. Uh, so we had a bunch of guys basically get wiped out immediately. And uh, it just... Not enough room to move around the map and no balancing mechanic just completely screwed up that campaign. And there was, you, as you said, there was nothing else to do. In a great campaign, a player has multiple objectives. He has sort of multiple actions that he could take. And in this campaign, the only action was really move and attack the guy next to me, which is just, I mean, really profoundly unsatisfying as a player. <laughs> Well, and you and I have talked about it before, and we may have talked about it in the last discussion of campaigns, but one of the things that makes a good scenario and, and thus a good campaign is there need to be multiple paths to victory. And that did not that did not allow that. No, no. We learned some some pretty painful lessons from that campaign. As you said, it didn't last very long, so it it, it flamed out in a hurry. Um, and there have been a number of campaigns in the club in the interim. I mean, that that campaign has to go back 15 years, I would say. Oh, uh, yeah. we've, we've had lots of campaigns, map and linear in between. But Miles, I think what might be our club's most recent campaign, or very close to most recent, was one that you designed and you ran in the club uh, just a, a year or two ago. And uh, was that the first campaign that you designed? It is the first campaign that I designed and then actually played with real people. And did you do better than I did? <laughs> uh, I did perhaps a little bit better. 
though we were interrupted with COVID. We did play it to a conclusion. Well, then you and, automatically and this, did better than I did. <laughs> this was a very silly campaign. It was a hypothetical invasion of America by Napoleon that as a youngster, I'd always dreamed of, 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 of running. And so the map was based on the Gulf Coast. Uh, we used Etan Sands resultants for the rules. I had, you know, a remnant British force to kind of give the land forces a little bit evenness. Uh, and then all the Napoleonic superstars were there, you know, De Vroom and, and Lanes. And uh, it was very silly. Uh, I thought it was fun. I, I, uh, a couple things I would have done differently um, that, that, that lended the way the map was set up. Uh, the Americans and British were on two extreme sides of the map and the French were on boats coming, coming in from the Caribbean in the center and one half of the map never got used. The New Orleans side of the map never got used and the players, which was Tony who were stuck there, didn't get to do anything. That was a really poor design element because I tried to do too much. Had I picked a smaller geographic area, I probably could have designed something where everybody could have been involved in the game. Uh, I think that worked. Uh, as, I, as I was running the campaign, I made a cardinal sin. I, I changed the pace. I got excited and I, I said, let's go faster. Let's Instead of one turn a week, let's do two. And, and, and I lost one of the players. Now, one of the benefits of the club is, is that we're very close. We trust one another. And this player said, look, I, I have a job. I don't want to play in a game that feels like a job, so I'm not going to play. And that's perfectly fine. And that was my fault for changing the pace. And so when you're running a campaign that had nine or 12 people participating, making it into, you know, making it that you know when it's going to happen, that it's not going to show up, oh, it's Wednesday, let's do something, let's let's have a standard schedule so people can plan their lives along, it's really important. And I, I failed to do that. Um, still, some things work pretty well. The, the, we had a very simple diplomacy session where players would bid to get the various Indian tribes to try to join their side or, or the other side. That was a lot of fun. Uh, the, the four bat three battles we had, I thought worked out pretty well. Uh, and, uh, it literally went down to the last turn with the French attempting to assault a fort and failing and giving the Americans and British a, a win, uh, by the very narrowest of margins. Uh, I think there are a bunch of things you did that were a lot smarter um, than what I did with the Crusades campaign. I mean, and you you mentioned the multiple objectives, right? There were a bunch of geographic objectives worth different points, and there were different ways to get them by land and sea. So immediately right out of the gate, it was a better design because you're giving the players more to do. You mentioned the diplomacy, you know, that's another thing a player can do other than fighting. And I think the biggest difference between the DBA campaign that flamed out and yours is that you did you did not have a point to point movement system. Yours yeah. was just like an open grid map where players had a lot more freedom of maneuver and that created a lot more space and I think a lot more tactical interest for the players being able to kind of plot their path where, you know, if you're going point to point, there really aren't that many choices, right? You go to this point or that point. Yeah. You, yours had, hey, am I going to go off the road through the jungle? Am I am I going to stay on the road and go faster? And you could go anywhere you wanted to go. Yeah. And it was just a simple grid, uh, square grid I, I superimposed on a historical period map. Uh, the other thing, I probably would not, I actually ran the entire campaign in Excel. Um, I had spreadsheets and then I had the like the map image and a little, I you know, 
clip art icons for the units. And, and, and I had three sheets. I had one sheet for the allies, one sheet for the French and one sheet for me where I could see everything. And that proved to be a big administrative pain in the ass. Um, and there are many a time I was about to send the French sheet to the allied sheet where I caught myself at the last minute. So the way I chose to administer it was a little bit burdensome, but I, I thought in all in all for my first time out of the box, I, I'm pleased. I, I can't wait to do another one. So it's been a while. So it's been a couple of years since I've, uh, attempted it again. I've talked about it, but I haven't done it yet. What are your memories of the, uh, of the 1815 campaign, Tony? I mean, you and I were both in it. I was at the end of the map where, where a lot was happening. You were at the end of the map where not a lot was happening. Uh, but what did you think yeah. of that campaign design? I, the overall campaign design, I, I think was a Excel aside. That's, that's miles background creeping into his gaming. It's um, so sad. <laughs> I, I think the overall campaign was was a great idea. Um, it was run to a conclusion. Um, if there was a nit to pick with it, the nit would be in the choice of rule sets for resolving the battles. But we have since uh, we've since resolved that issue. I, I we were at that point in love with that rule set, um, and but I don't think that had any serious impact on the campaign other than the it made some of the tabletop games like uh, we have to do the <laughs> yeah. thing. Um, but I, I do think that uh, all in all, um, yeah, trying to accelerate it was probably not a good choice. But other than that, I I thought that was a I thought that was a pretty good a pretty good campaign. I from hearing you talk about it, obviously, it was some administrative or logistic hassles for you, and probably some of that was brought on by trying to accelerate the pace of play. You know, I, I think I got excited because it was fun. It, it's a dream of mine to run a campaign like that. And uh, you just have to remember, like, like in business, there's a long tail. There's a lot of people involved and, and you, you, they just, you gotta, you gotta work, move at the pace they want to move at. And since then I found better tools in Excel, it pains me to say that as a, as, as a finance guy uh, that, that I think will probably, you know, be easier to run. Um, but it was fun. It was a silly concept. And, and, you know, again, very grateful for the club for indulging my 14 year old, you know, war gaming fantasy of pulling that off. Well, nice. I think, I think pretty much any campaign that you're, you're looking at, especially map based campaigns has some degree of administrative overhead. I mean, the person running the campaign is going to have to, especially if they're doing fog of war, which you did miles, you know, both the sides, couldn't see necessarily what the other side was doing. And you were the guy in the middle yep. implementing that fog of war. Well, that automatically is going to give the game master administrative overhead. And like you said, we had like eight or nine guys in the campaign. So again, the game master has to facilitate recording orders and moves from eight or nine different people. And, and there's really, I mean, unless you guys have some other idea that I've not come across, there's, there's really no way around that. You, you you have to do that if you want to have fog of war. I mean, we have played campaigns where there is no game master. Mm -hmm. Everyone's a player. Everybody sees everything on the map. And there's less overhead involved in something like that. But it's also not nearly as fun as a player. I love the fact that Miles was the GM and that I couldn't see 
what was happening. That adds so much interest to the campaign. Oh, no, no, I, I would agree 100% that there's going to be some overhead for the person running the campaign. Um, but I think that, you know, as Miles just said, perhaps um, much as he loves Excel, perhaps a, a different method. Um, I believe that one of the things that ultimately leads to a good campaign is that it has to be enjoyable for the person administering the campaign. And the tendency is we want to have all the stuff, got all these ideas in my head, and I want all that stuff out there in the campaign. But what happens is as the person running it, now I'm responsible for tracking all the stuff. Um, and so you need to come up with uh, there's got to be a mechanic that for you as the person running the campaign that I can incorporate everything that I think is important in some way that doesn't make me dread asking the players to send in their new turn orders. I think or, that's as important as anything else in the campaign. To and on the reverse, successful. on the reverse side of that, Tony, something that doesn't put too much of a burden on the players, you right. know, um, Steve, ran uh years ago a campaign that we never finished it was a pacific campaign um what was that coral sea i think it was coral sea yes it is, was. That, is that the one where there's still an airstrike yes inbound that that, <laughs> that that has been in the air for years that we're waiting for it to find there's been a there's been an american airstrike in the air for like five years now um and steve like was that running movie that... where the nimitz gets lost in time and goes back to pearl harbor <laughs> We've all been lost in time on that campaign. I'm I'm sure it's never going to resolve at this point. The Americans clearly won, but we played that. We we Steve ran that campaign and we played it for a number of turns. We got really deep into it. He was using Vassal to handle a lot of the administrative overhead, which makes the job of the GM, I think, a lot easier because the players are all moving their chits on Vassal. The problem is, if you know anything about Vassal, if you've ever used it as a program, it is really a cumbersome and not intuitive program. And in this campaign, you know, players, I was on the Japanese side, you know, you're supposed to be plotting like air searches. You've got different planes that you're like putting all over the map. And we had a number of guys drop out of that campaign. Basically every turn, somebody was dropping out because it was just like, it, you're, you're asking a lot of the players. It was a major commitment. So the only players that remained in the campaign were the ones who were like the most committed and and that's okay you know some not everybody has to play every campaign but i think if you're if we're trying to give listeners like tips and advice for how to design a really good map based campaign especially for your first or second one i would try to keep the administrative overhead light on the players really light on the players and then the gm is going to be the person who's most invested they're going to have a little bit more work and Hopefully, hopefully they're using something other than Microsoft Excel, right, Miles? Well, you know, again, it pains me to say that. But yes, I, I think also Tony had a great point. My first draft of the, the campaign rules for this for this invasion of America were over 70 pages of single spaced word document ramblings. It, it, it was my uh, uh, Ted Krasinski uh, manifesto. Um <laughs> Uh, and, and I threw everything in there because uh, I thought it might be cool or I might need it. And I think being really disciplined and maybe trying to limit your kind of campaign rules to no more than an arbitrary 10 pages, just so you focus on 
what's workable. I had way too much the first few drafts. And had I inflicted that on players, I think you guys may have beaten me. I physically would have come out of the club with black eyes and, and, and a limp. Uh, and, and so be really thoughtful about where you want to have a rule or where you just want to ignore something the first time out, I, th I think is important. Well, and or you there, could, you could... go on, sorry. The, the Coral Sea campaign, um, it seemed like a good idea on paper, as it were. Steve decided to use the old Battle Line Avalon Hill flat top game, which is the Coral Sea campaign. But having owned a copy forever and a day, it's a complex game. There is a lot of stuff to track and do. And most of the people involved in the campaign weren't familiar with the game. The rules are somewhat lengthy. Um, it likewise, it's not 70 pages, but it's, you know, 40 pages of very small print and very few diagrams. So to try and run it, and as you said, Vassal was kind of clunky. So now you have this complex rule set that none of the players really have a firm grasp of, and they're trying to run it on a clunky AI setup. So it it made some headache moments. I had started out originally as the Japanese overall commander, but um, a couple of weeks into it, my computer crapped the bed and it was a some lag till I got that corrected. And Steve was like, I need to, I said, dude, I can't, I, I can't take to, to sit out until I get that corrected. I, I have no idea what's going on. So put somebody else in charge. Here's the, here's the plan we agreed on and put somebody else in. But yeah, it was, a I, I think some complexity there, both in the system, the vassal system for the players and it is a fairly complex game to begin with. I do think the idea, though, of using a board game as the basis of your map-based campaign is a really good idea, especially oh, yeah. if you haven't designed a campaign before because somebody else has already written a board game. And some of them might be a little bit better suited to this than others. As as Tony was talking about Flat Top, I was thinking mm -hmm. like, okay, you know, what's a board game or two we've played in the club I think would be good for this. And honestly, the um, the card-driven... We the People by Mark Herman from the Revolutionary War. And then a successor to that is Rome versus Carthage, which covers the Second Punic War. Those are both fantastic board games that it would be really easy for you to use that board game and say, hey, look, when the armies meet on the map, which in both cases isn't that often, there aren't that many big battles. Um, that'd be a great engine. If you don't want to write your own like Miles and I tried and failed to do, I mean, you could just use somebody else's and, and, and convert it. Well, I think that's a good idea, Greg. Also, I think that that time period is easier to do a campaign on where there's a lot of maneuver. There's a handful of battles, more modern things where there's constant friction. That's harder to do in an episodic campaign. But if you're to do Napoleonics or civil war or, or anything like that, where there's, you know, most of the campaign is marching around trying to outmaneuver your, your opponent. I think that works really well. And I think a, a hex encounter game uh, like the OSG Napoleonic games is one that I've always wanted to try. I want to do the 1809 Austrian campaign. And I'm thinking of using a, a, a old GDW hex encounter game to run it on, which has a, in itself some hidden movement in it with, you know, dummy counters and things like that. 
Yeah, I, I would agree, Miles, that in the days before the continuous front, um, it makes for it makes for a more fun a more interesting campaign in that there's a lot more maneuver at the at the operational level than there is in say World War One or World War II land based game. Mm -hmm. I I'm going to throw this out there. Maybe this is just I don't know, but I'm thinking that a Vietnam campaign would work in that there's no there's no front line right there's a lot of maneuvering trying to locate and pin the enemy um i think that would lend itself uh, all the other stuff aside i think that would lend itself to a a good map based campaign i agree yeah, that's the fun part, right? I mean, that's at the start, I said the reason that map-based campaigns always appealed more to me is because you want to maneuver. Uh, so that's the part that you really want to encourage and get out of it. And to Miles's point, if you have too many encounters, if you have too many battles, you're never going to finish your campaign. And, you know, we have had that happen in our club. I think some of the best campaigns that we've run have been very short. They've been a very low turn limit, sort of a, a strict number of battles. I mean, of course, the one that anybody listening would be familiar with is the Pyrrhic War campaign that we, the only one that we filmed on YouTube. We've played a lot of campaigns in the club and never filmed them. The Pyrrhic War was only five turns. I think we only had four or five actual tabletop encounters over the course of the entire campaign. And But that made it playable. That's something you can actually resolve. And there's nothing more disappointing for a player or a GM than like, you get all invested into doing a campaign and it fizzles out and you don't get to a conclusion. I mean, that's, that's really, I think, disheartening. <laughs> well, and we ran two other campaigns in the club that were successful, were run to a finish. The 1815 campaign that uh, Tom ran using Blucher, um, that, that worked out well uh it was map based movement the forces were there were there were a lot of forces on the table there were a lot of chances for battles there were a lot of battles on the tabletop that when you realized what you were facing it was like oh let's just uh, run away let's not engage there and in the terms of the campaign whether you left because you were outnumbered or whether you left i i you know, looking at Miles' actions in the campaign, the the Prussian army chased Miles and chased Miles and chased Miles, and that allowed Napoleon to try and defeat the British in detail while we were busy chasing, you know, a, a phantom of the army and never really pinning him down and i think that was tactically that was brilliant and it was also a lot of fun in that here we are ah oh, finally we've got him cornered oh once again he slips the noose and that, the chase is on that, that was a lot of fun i, I was grouch i had grouchy's core uh, I'm sure I've mispronounced that, as we do all French names. We mispronounce them. Uh, <laughs> that was a that, that campaign was fun because that was one where we pulled out all the stops to try to trick one another within the game. Uh, I can remember one battle where Greg was Napoleon, uh, and, and and I was in big trouble. 
And we would play the games on Monday night. Tom would come in and set them up. And then I would run away from the table. But one game I couldn't get to the point I wanted to get to. So I had Greg come over as Napoleon. I would point to parts on the table and he would trick the Prussians to think that the French army was coming there. So I was able to slip away the other side. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Tom was a great sport because I can't remember how many battles he set up. And then, you know, we just moved stuff out and we were done in a half hour because I would slip away. Um, uh, but, you know, it, 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 it ran really well. Uh, I think he did use um, Vassal to run the campaign. I'm not sure he did, but he just did it himself. We None of us participated. We would just give him orders. Very simply done. Um, I'm going to move three squares up and two squares right. Uh, and, and I thought that was a lot of fun. Uh, again, I might not use the rule set Blucher again. I, might, I prefer something like Volley and Bayonet, uh, yeah. but it's okay. Blucher was fine. Uh, yeah, yeah, that that was not a detraction for the the campaign itself. I really liked the way Tom ran that as a player because he handled everything just over like Facebook Messenger, which we yeah. use a lot on the club. And there was very little like work as a player. Tom was doing all the work behind the scenes, recording everything, and all we had to do as players was just like shoot him a Facebook message that said where we wanted to send our troops and he handled the rest. So mm -hmm. I think if you're, if you're listening and you're considering running a game for your friends, finding ways to make it easy for them, the way that Tom did for us is a, a great way, not only to keep it moving, but also to keep the players engaged so that you, you don't have worry about guys feeling like they need to drop out because they just like don't have time to do, you know, read your 70 page rule book and, you know, issue 50 different orders all over the map, which, you know, that can get a little complex. And I think initially, it, initially there was, at least on the Prussian side, I, I wound up being Blucher. There was a, a fair amount of concern just because campaign games for, for me as, as a participant, um, the campaign is won or lost in what we do off the table. Um, mm -hmm. What we do on the table is a reflection of how well we've done up until that point. A good general never fights a fair fight. So I, I remember the first, when he sent out the first packet, here's where you are, here's where your units are, here are your objectives, here's what you know about the enemy. I'm sitting in bed with chandler's uh campaign of 100 days and the map and a bunch of colored markers and i'm looking at the map and i'm making notes and i'm drawing circles and arrows on the map and my poor girlfriend is like what the actual it's a game i'm like hush your mouth <laughs> that's what and a that's... good campaign does that's oh, what yeah. it does and that's the part about a yeah. campaign that always just like oh my god I got to put some serious thought into this because what if he goes here or <laughs> what if he goes there? <laughs> you know, um, Tony, you, you mentioned chasing miles all over the map. Something else that's really important to note that Tom baked into his system is that even though miles was able to slip away in, I mean, countless tabletop engagements that we didn't play, there were victory point penalties for doing that. Oh, yes. Tom, Tom had baked that in. So, yeah, it was OK that Miles was running away and didn't fight the tabletop engagement. But the French were suffering a campaign penalty for essentially what was a battlefield defeat. Yes, Miles was preserving his forces and he was buying time. 
but it was costing the French points. And if, if you don't have a mechanic like that baked in, uh, I, I, it can lead to a lot, a lot of campaign balance issues because we should have been penalized. I was on the French side with Miles. I mean, those were penalties we should have been taking. So all of this stuff is connected, which maybe comes back to why you might want to consider a board game as your as your early campaign engine to avoid some of the pitfalls that I ran into all those years ago when I tried to design a system from scratch. And there were like all these horrible design glitches and loopholes and the idea of chasing miles around the map, you know, that that would have been one of them. That's a that would have been a huge loophole. Well, and at some point, some point late in that campaign. Ed and I came to the realization that every time Miles ran away, it was actually aiding our side. We figured out that there's some there's some mechanic in there that's penalized that will ultimately penalize the French. And so we went from cursing Miles and sticking pins into a little doll that looked like Miles to, you know what? If he stays and fights, we fight him. If he runs away, eh, we're just, we started moving towards the sound of the guns, regardless of what Miles did. For a while, we, we focused solely on chasing Miles. And then at some point, we're like, you know, if we can keep Miles uh, over there and start moving towards an objective like real soldiers um, and, and not fixate, we'll just, we'll deal with what Miles does when Miles does it. And we're we're still going to continue. We're not going to chase him. He's gonna he's gonna kind of flank us, and that'll be that. We're going to go that way and let Miles intercede. And and I I think that was a great mechanic. That ultimately there was some penalty for the French because while Miles was eating up the clock and preserving his force, he was also again and again and again leaving the field of battle which ultimately you know at some point or another his troops are going to start you know referring to his leadership in terms like uh, the the yankees did with mcclellan and hooker um hey. you know, a couple of decades later <laughs> um and speaking of mcclellan and hooker i think probably our most successful campaign was one that greg ran um greg has the distinction of running our first campaign which went down in flames yes um but greg greg came out of the gate the second time guns ablazing and ran um a quote-unquote gettysburg campaign that was brilliant had every element that you would want in a map-based campaign. Some units got lost. There was some question about whether orders ever arrived. Um, there was a lot of guessing about not only where the enemy is, but where the rest of the army is. Greg, tell us all about um, the, the process that went into creating that campaign. I tried to learn from all of the mistakes <laughs> of uh, previous campaigns. And uh, I, I don't know, what do you think? Six years maybe since we did the Gettysburg campaign, five. Uh, it was definitely before COVID. Um, and it was a giant map. 
I mean, a huge grid-based map, uh, which is available for free online uh, if anybody wants to go and play the entire campaign. I posted all the rules and the map. So you immediately gave players a huge amount of latitude for where they were going to move. Uh, the other big advantage of the Gettysburg campaign, if you know the history, is that all the all the forces start very dispersed. So everybody got to begin in a historical starting position as a core commander. And right out of the gate, they've got objectives all over the map that they can go for and a huge sandbox that they can play in. It was a huge administrative overhead because I kept a separate fog of war, not just for each side, but a separate fog of war for every individual player. So as the GM, I produced a new map every turn for each player. So if you were near one of your you know, fellow core commanders, of course you would know where he is. But if you were on the other side of the map from even a core in your own army, you might only have a vague understanding. I actually used Microsoft Paint and I would just draw like a, a circle. Like <laughs> here are the 20 different grids that such and such a core might be in. So it encouraged players to use scouting, you know, to have pickets out there to kind of see what was going on. As Tony alluded to, one of our players, uh, John Yingling, got he, he got completely lost. Uh, and he also didn't send messages to any of his other core commanders about where he was. So most of our union players spent the whole game wondering where Sickles in the third core was. And, and the joke of it, the, the, the genius of it all in the end is that we, you know, we had major battles, multiple battles, not at Gettysburg, but at Emmitsburg. And this whole time, all the Union players are bitching and moaning about how Sickles is gone, and they don't know where he is, and goddamn Sickles. Sickles actually was maneuvering behind the Confederate army, slipped through the Shenandoah Valley, and cut off the Confederate retreat back to Virginia. It was it was a, a campaign-winning move, <laughs> But none of the Union players had any idea that John was doing it until the campaign was over. So I I think the, the fog of war that everybody got to experience was a lot of fun for the players. It was a lot of work as a GM, but because it was a short-term limit, um, you know, it, it, it was doable. Which, again, circles back to probably my number one piece of advice for anybody who is considering a map-based campaign. Don't bite off more than you can chew. If you're going to have a lot of complexity, like I did at Gettysburg, that's okay. Just really try to limit the length so that you know that you can get to a conclusion and that you don't burn out as the GM and you're, you know, and you're not burning out your players. Um, Miles, if, if, if you had to kind of like boil down one piece of advice for people on a map-based campaign you know mine is keep it short what would be like your your number I, one i takeaway? think the, the my number one thing is for your first time out use a preset campaign like your gettysburg campaign in the blucher system they have a waterloo campaign um that you know it, it's a one week 10 day period x number of turns you know you shouldn't have a, a 50 turn campaign you should have a 10 turn campaign. My New Orleans campaign was 10 turns, um, but a very finite period of time. Uh, but use uh, learning to run a campaign is a skill in of itself. Designing campaign is another skill. Trying to do both at the same time is a pretty tall order. Like we both learned, you with the DBA campaign, me with my first campaign. So minimize that. Get a preset campaign over a, a, a set period of time that's relatively simple. And then learn how to be a really good GM. 
And then once you know how to be a really good GM, you can tinker with the rules and make your own rules up and have a really good basis of understanding of what you think can really work or not work. What about you, Tony? I would say for your first campaign or, or your hundredth campaign, be realistic with your expectations for what the players are willing to deal with in terms of mechanics and, and rules and, and gameplay and be realistic about what you as the game master are willing to deal with in that a campaign is going to be a labor of love for everybody involved, but you want it to be more love and, and less labor. So you got to find that balance where everybody is having fun and yet it still makes people fret about their decisions. That's all I got. I, I, one thing I would add is you, you've heard us talk about all the things that can go wrong with a campaign. I think for me, my best gaming experience had been related when I played in campaigns. And so I would encourage everybody, take the risk. It's okay if you mess up your first one. That's how you learn. Uh, the worst campaigns are the ones no one ever tries because they're afraid they're going to mess it up. You're going to mess up your first one. It's okay. We all do. Uh, but you're still going to have fun. And so I would encourage everybody to give it a try. Uh, uh, pick a period that that all of your players are interested in um, and, and give it a shot. You'll learn a lot. And I guarantee you the next time you run it, you're going to have the greatest campaign in the world. Yeah, great, great advice. Just just go for it. I, I agree. I think a lot of the best ga games and gaming experiences I think back on in our club have somehow been related to a campaign. And it's it's really no surprise, right? Because there's stakes. I mean, we come in every Monday to our club and nine times out of 10, we're just doing like a random battle, which is always fun. Mm -hmm. But, you know, nine or nine thirty, we pack up the battle. It's over. And you don't think about that again. It, it didn't matter. You know, you you ordered that suicidal. We always call it what? Like, the, oh, it's 9 p.m., guys. I'm going to charge. <laughs> maybe I'll, maybe <laughs> I'll roll a six. It's the last turn of the game. I'm going to charge. Um, in a campaign, you don't have that because there are presumable stakes. Like, there's going to be another battle. There's going to be another turn. So it completely changes the way that you and your opponent play the game. And that's what makes it so much fun, whether it's linear or map-based. I think that's... That's the whole point of stringing together multiple battles because you get those yeah. those stakes, that tension. So um, it it actually has been a while since we played a campaign yeah. in the club. I think Miles, you you might have been the last one. So um, is there a a map or linear ba based campaign that either one of you guys have had in mind as something that you would like to do that would like be well, high I'm, on your I'm, list? I'm working on two. Uh, one you've seen is a Pelu campaign game. Uh, which is more design, maybe for a video, definitely for a convention. You know, Tony and I ran a Stalingrad campaign at the last uh, uh, fall and, and had, a, had a great time doing that. And, uh, and the video from Stalingrad was fantastic. Yeah, good oh, work, Tony. Um, <laughs> I'm supposed to be editing a video for Stalingrad. I suck as a video editor. Much like that airstrike in the Coral Sea campaign, it's still in production. <laughs> Uh, Miles, the Peleliu game that you're thinking of, is that a linear structure? Is it a map-based structure? It, what, it, how are it's you a map-based, well, it's a board-based. So, you know, it, it's a it's an island of Peleliu. Each player will command a regiment. The GM will command the Japanese since they don't, it's a pretty tough position for them. And each regiment's competing against the other one to see which one can uh, capture the most territory. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll test it a couple times at the club. Uh, my guess is that this campaign can run over five to six hours and be done. Oh, okay. Um, so maybe a good Saturday event. Yeah, it's a good Saturday game. Or you can break it up into four or five two-hour convention games and different players rotate in and out to take over the other side. And then I'm working on an 1809 uh, uh, Austrian campaign uh, game because we have to do something Napoleonics eventually. What about you, Tony? Anything um, that is of interest to you, map or linear-based? Um, couple of ideas for some linear-based campaigns. I would like to do uh, 11th Panzer at the Battle of Stalingrad, at the, the Stalingrad campaign. Uh, that 11th Panzer fights a series of just incredible, fast-paced engagements, one after the other, trying to stem the red tide to no avail. I think there's a good linear campaign in there. Um the other thing that I have all the minis for and have been thinking about doing, um, there's a World War I naval linear campaign um, put out by the Old Dominion Games people uh, to go with the, the GQ3 rules. And there's some decisions that each side will have to make that will affect the outcome of, of the next the, the next battle. And of course, any losses, because for all intents and purposes, anything that's damaged, you're never going to see that. You know, that stuff is gone. Mm -hmm. um, a linear campaign from the beginning of of the war up until uh, about Dogger Bank. So, you know, the first two, two years of the war. Um, I, I know there's some other ideas being kicked around in the club. Um, I'm sure there's some other stuff that if we thought about it, we'd be like, oh, that would be a good idea. Yeah, it's hard to run too many of them at once um, because, I mean, we only meet once a week, so... Well, I think you can only roll, roll one, one, one at one time. Yeah, yeah I, I, one campaign, maybe two at most, if they were small, would be, uh, would be about the limit. Because um, if you're restricted to one Monday, uh, you know, a week that we can resolve battles, I mean, you know, it, it's hard to jump around too much but whatever our next club campaign is um i'm i'm excited i'm looking forward to it and uh the conversation here is not over uh we do have an interview coming up uh, immediately after this with mark backhouse uh if you are at all on social media then you are very familiar with mark he's very prolific on on twitter uh, he writes a lot for war games soldiers and strategy magazine he's also a very veteran campaign gm so he is coming on as our guest to talk about lessons that he has learned running all kinds of campaigns, including a style of campaign I honestly had never heard of until we talked to Mark. Uh, had either one of you guys heard of Matrix campaigns before we talked to Mark? Uh, no. Not before we talked to Mark. Nope. Yeah. Really, really cool style. It's like a blend of role playing and wargaming. And actually, Miles, you and I were lucky enough to play a Matrix campaign yeah. that Mark ran for us, a 1066 campaign. So if you're listening and you're wondering what the hell that means, uh, Mark is going to tell you all about Matrix campaigns. He's also going to talk about his new rule set, Strength and Honor, the Big Battle Ancient System. And of course, uh, he'll be talking about map-based campaigns.
So I am thrilled to be joined today by Mark Backhouse from across the Atlantic. Mark, how are you this evening? Yeah, I'm really good, thanks, Greg. Great to be on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, absolutely. Uh, thrilled to get the chance to talk to you today about campaigns. Uh, in our previous podcast, a number of us were talking about linear or ladder style campaigns. And of course, the theme today is map-based campaigns. So before we get into some specific examples of what you have done, more generally speaking, what do you think about linear versus map-based campaigns? Uh, have you played one style more than the other? And uh, what advantages do you think a map-based campaign might offer a gamer over the, the linear style? Well, uh, I suppose I play about 50-50 linear campaigns and map-based campaigns. Um, the advantage, I suppose, with a linear campaign is it means you maybe don't need the same level of involvement from it as a games master, who's somebody who's running through the games and knowing what all the secret moves are of each of the armies, where they're marching to and that kind of thing. I suppose the advantage of a linear campaign is just two people can turn up and, and play the games one at a time, maybe historically, um, and see the outcomes of each of the battles and how that affects and the next one's in line. So um, the linear ones can be just really nice and fun to do with mates at the club. But I suppose if you want something a little bit more serious and possibly a little bit maybe more sort of historically accurate in terms of sort of uh, recreating, I suppose, the challenges that generals face, I suppose a map-based one really is um, going to bring a, a new strategic elements to your campaign, isn't it? So um, I think the map-based campaigns probably I prefer if I have the time to do them, but um, we don't always have that luxury, do we, unfortunately? We do not. And uh, speed and ease is clearly the advantage of the linear style campaign. But if you're looking for, you know, strategic depth, I, I, I love map based campaigns. That's always my first choice. And I know that you have a bunch of them we could be talking about here in this conversation. Let's start by talking about one that I have seen pictures of uh, on <laughs> Twitter before. I know you're very active on there on social media. Uh, it's your Portsmouth campaign. And even though I've seen photos of some of the battles and the setup, um, I really don't know how you ran it as a campaign. So maybe this would be a great opportunity for you to let listeners know uh, what the campaign was, what was the format, how was a map involved, and uh, how many players did you have in this campaign? Sure. Um, okay, so um, the first campaign I want to talk about a little bit is uh, the Siege of Portsmouth in 1642, uh, which was one of the very first battles of the English Civil War. In fact, it was actually fought even before King Charles raised his standard in Nottingham to uh, gather the royalist forces there. So it was one of the very preliminary battles of the war, which was all about the, sort of the, 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 the idea of trying to capture Portsmouth, which was held by the royalists initially. Um, in, in the summer of 1642 against the rest of Hampshire, which was largely uh, allied to the parliamentary cause. So it was very much as a lone island surrounded by a sea of uh, parliamentarians. And I decided that I wanted to uh, play this out, partly because it was a local campaign to me. I'm from near, very near Portsmouth Harbour, the other side of the harbour, really. So it's something that I see regularly. And it's something that I've been finding out a lot more about in local history. I've been given fairly short shrift in terms of its sort of its coverage in, in lots of narratives of the English Civil War. So I thought it was time to address that, really. Um, so what I decided to do was to um, game it. Originally, I gamed it in 28, but actually, funnily enough, as a, a series of linear battles, actually, very similar to that sort of ladder campaign you were talking about a while back. But I found that I was missing something inside it, and I was missing that bigger strategic picture um, that really captured the flavour of the campaign. So I went about designing a table for it, which was going to be in two mil scale. 
which was going to be six foot by four foot, but it was actually going to be a strategic map, really, um, uh, almost sort of uh, bathtubbed onto a six by four table, a bit similar to your map of Italy that you had inside your fantastic um, uh, Pericor campaigns that you've been playing recently. Yeah, except um, your table looked a lot cooler from the pictures I saw. Well, you say that, I don't know. I thought your, your Italy map was pretty splendid as well, to be honest with you, and it's inspired me for some other things. Which I've got up my sleeve later in the year. <laughs> um, but so we had a big map basically at Portsmouth, which if you don't know, Portsmouth is basically a, a very large island. Um, and uh, today it's the, one of the densest uh, populated places inside Britain, outside of central London. It's absolutely ram-packed with terrace housing from uh, the turn of the century, last century. But um, in 1642, I managed to get lots of old maps of the island and the area around it and see how basically it was largely agricultural areas. Um, and Portsmouth itself really was a sort of a, a pretty tin pot little place with uh, a population of about a thousand people inside it, uh, compared with the 250,000 now. Um, so in Tumel, I was able to sort of recreate that sort of area of space there and pick out all the key towns and uh, small villages and hamlets and things on, uh, on Portsmouth and uh, on the actual uh, Portsy Island as well. And also then recreate some of the land around it. So sort of overlooking that, there's a, a big uh, chalk hill there called um, Portsdown Hill, which was very significant in terms of the strategy of the Battle of the Siege. And uh, I also realised there were a number of other locations which were further afield. And, and I represented those with a very, very simple, um, almost sort of like a chessboard sort of map, really, with it very much... Um, Sort of instead of worrying about the, the ground scale and that kind of thing, really, it sort of showed all the other key locations in the local area. So uh, where I'm from in Gosport, for example, the other side of the harbour, uh, up into Fareham, um, Southampton, and then going a bit further north up into where uh, William Waller was from, uh, which was just further up uh, north inside Hampshire. Um, and he was up in Andover, which isn't that far away. I kind of guess it's a 40 minute drive in the car or something like that today. So it must be the best part of 30 miles away from Portsmouth, something like that. Um, so I had sort of two, two tables then running and that, then one sort of actual proper gaming table, which looked to all intents and purposes like a proper war game, but just in two mil. And then I had this very simplistic sort of grid based map here, which we could move around reserves of troops from. Um, and on that, table there you could see the troops gathering from different parts of Hampshire as the different um, parliamentary troops were raised by the local MPs and were marching down towards Portsmouth and that gave us a strategic dimension and a sense of what was going on um, to the actual siege table itself and then on top of that then more troops were being sent, trained bands were being sent from London for example down to support the siege. Um, so there were lots of different things going on off table um, off the main battlefield on this other map as well. So it was quite a strange combination, really, of a, of a strategic uh, map rather than a tactical map on the, the actual battlefield. And then we had this wider, broader, uh, big map of the local county covering a, a, an area of maybe 30 or 40 miles around on either side of it. So a little bit different, maybe, from a standard map uh, campaign. I wasn't too worried about what individual roads and things were. Um, or sort of who was holding exactly which hamlet. It was basically about where were these sort of the main reserves of troops and where were they arriving from and that kind of thing. So that's the sort of way it played out. And um, as the strategic troops from the strategic map, the, the bigger map picture then were, were brought onto the actual main tabletop map, they could arrive at different times. And uh, a lot of the game involved 
not your standard sort of war game of just rushing towards the other side and blowing them to pieces with your muskets and cannons, but instead gathering resources. Um, the first part of the siege of the Royalists is very much about preparing the defences and making sure that in the very limited time you've got, um, you can basically hold on for as long as possible. So a lot of it involves going around and, and looting the, the nearby villages, um, rustling up all their cattle and sheep and that kind of thing and bringing them back towards Portsmouth. Um, flooding the local area around the city itself there, which was a, sort of a Dutch tactic from the Thirty Years' War and making sure that was all prepared, building earthworks and uh, preparing defences and just sort of a re, re, uh, re-strengthening the walls in places where they were looking a bit shifty and they hadn't invested enough money over the previous 20 years or so. So it had all these sort of other dimensions that the Royalists had to carry out. And at the same time, then the parliamentary troops were all trying to sort of basically coordinate their attack, which was quite tricky because they weren't under one clear command all in one place with a walkie-talkie being able to speak to them, of course. Um, that was being played out by two or three other players who were all trying to sort of bring their troops forward and, 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 uh, and gather them all and concentrate them all in one place to actually conduct the siege. So lots of different challenges for the different players there um, to try to face during the battle. And hopefully that recreated an element, I suppose, of... Um, of uh, decision making, but also some of the challenges that the real commanders would have had to face rather than just simply a tabletop encounter with the two armies lining up and having a good scrap. Well, it certainly sounds much more involved than the the normal kind of one-off tabletop encounter. Uh, How many players are we talking about for a campaign like this? And what Uh, what period of time would this require? Yeah, I mean, for this type of game here, I was trying to get it to play at shows. So I wanted it to, to play at um, Partidan, which is one of the big sort of um, big wargaming events over in the UK. And I was trying to run two games of it in a day there. So I was aiming for games which were lasting between about two to three hours, maybe, something like that there, to play an entire campaign into that time period there. So by necessity, the actual tactical battles on the, on the battlefield, actually on the map itself, um, were determined by a pretty simplistic system. Um, there wasn't a great deal of, sort of tactical nuance to it, really. I kind of felt that the, the armies at this point here were so uh, poorly trained anyway. Um, there wasn't a great deal to the actual fighting, apart from you know, which side would break first um, once they lined up and uh, fired a volley or two at each other. Um, so, um, it, you know, the actual combat side to it was pretty small, and that was done with just simple sort of quick dice-off rolls, really. Um, but the actual campaign was typically asking, yeah, about two and a half hours to three hours, maybe. Um, and again, I could take it down to a club night and, and practice it there and run that, you know, on a, a long club evening uh, quite happily. So for me, a campaign which is that sort of length there is is, is quick enough. That you get a sense of completion and there's a sense of a, a clear winner at the end of it. Um, but also it's something that you can actually sort of show a, a, a game show and, and maybe keep the same players on for the entire morning or entire afternoon session. It's quite plausible they might hang around for it rather than getting bored in 20 minutes and going off home again or, um, uh, you know, one of those campaigns that drags on for months and months and months, which, um, if I'm being honest with you, this might be sound a bit heretical. I, I talk about map campaigns, but actually I tend to get a bit bored of and they always tend to be the ones that, that I struggle with um, when they're a bit too overlong. And uh, I think having a, a real sense of quick completion, a sense of fulfilment that you've had a campaign and you've got a real sense of different things happening inside it. Um, it is what you need to achieve, really, in a, in a good campaign. So uh, size isn't everything. Well, that's uh, exactly what I would expect a, a two-millimeter fanatic to say. You know, size isn't everything. <laughs> <laughs> that should be your, your new Twitter kind of uh, your, your bio. 
Two mil for attic. Yeah, exactly. Big, big in the Canary Islands was the one I was thinking going with, with uh, my strength and honour fan base there but um yeah i can go with that yeah that's okay well the idea of a of a two or three hour campaign i i absolutely love we have done a couple of what i would call that mini mini campaign style we've, we've done a few of those in our club they're almost always linear or, or ladder based okay. the idea of doing a map based campaign that only takes two or three hours is really mm. intriguing because normally you know when i think of a map based campaign you're thinking of something that is a more complicated playing experience, mm -hmm. something that a quick, in our club, a quick map-based campaign might take us, you know, a couple of months to resolve. I yeah. would consider that fairly sure. quick. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of our failed campaigns have taken years to resolve <laughs> and sure, they just, sure. they fizzle out, you know, they, they yeah. fizzle out and they don't get to that sense of completion. Well, um, for, for, for me, about six weeks is normally my, um, my my level of concentration on any one project, which is, you know, at the club or something. Normally, after six weeks, if we haven't felt that we've got somewhere, then that's time to hang up the boots and try something different for us, really. So, um, I don't know, maybe you've got slightly more committed players in your club who are, who are willing to sort of put up with something repeatedly over and over again. But uh, uh, Depends I, on I, the player, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my gut feeling is there's normally one or two people who love it, a campaign that length there. Yes. And then people invariably fizzle out because they, they run out of energy, they can't turn up for a few weeks and then feel out of the loop. Or maybe they do quite badly in the first couple of battles and then feel that they um, they don't really see much point in playing any further because they know they've lost or not done so well. So having that sense of um, a, a, a campaign which they can take part inside, they can get a victory and then at the end of the day we can all go down the pub and have a pint or whatever else that might be to unwind you know, afterwards and have a laugh about it. Really it's the unwinding afterwards and laughing about what really happened is, is all part of the fun as well at the end of a campaign. So... Um, anything that can be done in a short period of time for me is a good thing as far as I'm concerned. You know, Mark, one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you about campaigns specifically is because I know that you do a lot of your own designs. Mm. Uh, you know, recently you you published Strength and Honor, which is, uh, you know, tabletop battles. I know there's a campaign element to that we'll get to, but I, I know that you work on campaigns as well. Um, and you know, picking up a campaign that someone else has written, you know, in our last episode, we talked a lot about the lardy pint sized campaigns, yeah, which, sure. which are great. You know, that's, that's, that's such a, a good way for a player to get introduced because somebody else has already done the work. They've done the play testing, mm. you know, and, and you just have to roll that out. Now, what you described for Portsmouth is something you created from the ground yeah. up. Yeah. Uh, and, and one of the challenges I want to ask you about that we have come across many times when we're working on map based campaigns, I'd love to know how you handle this, is that you know, the whole point of a map based campaign is that the players are able to do some maneuver there. That's sure. the strategy element that everybody mm -hmm. enjoys. And everybody wants to be the general who can hit their opponent where he's the weakest and, you know, catch him with a smaller force. That's part of the excitement. But sure. that that sets up an inherent problem, because then when you go to the tabletop, one of the sides presumably has been caught yeah. and their force is going to be a lot smaller. And, and then you run into the issue of that side, basically just looking to disengage. They're looking to get away. And we've gone to the effort of, you know, setting up these big tabletop battles because we had a, a contact on the map and you set up the table and everybody shows up to the club to play. And then one of the two sides is like, Oh, I'm out of here. You know, I've got my, and, and that is the right move. That's smart, but it's so deflating in the campaign when mm. it's it's just a, a cat and mouse game of you setting up the table and somebody running away 
realistic, sure. but not necessarily satisfying. Uh, is well, this um, is this something you've seen in your campaigns? And yeah, I mean, it's only, I, I, I've uh, I've played that before, and in particular, I remember playing a uh, a very long running American War of Independence campaign using the old uh, Patriots and Loyalist rules that we played using. Um, it must have been something from out of Strategy and Tactics magazine, one of those great maps you get inside there, which had converted onto a, a campaign system where we decided, wouldn't it be a great idea to play the entire um, American War of Independence or something starting in 1775? Um, and uh, I think it sort of started, and after about at like six or seven weeks worth of it there, we kept finding that people were turning up with huge force of British ready to sort of march on the uh the poor colonials and uh then suddenly they'd fire a volley and then disappear off the table again to the immense frustration of the british which was you know probably fairly accurate in terms of the way in which a lot of the battles went but not a particularly satisfying engagement so i suppose there's, there's some different things you can do there to it one thing you could do though is to, to penalize troops which turn up on the table and then fall back away with a very high level of desertion after the battle so that they um their morale collapses and they're less likely to be effective in the next battle. So as if they've actually fought a battle and done quite badly, um, that's quite a nice way of penalising them to try and sort of make sure that they don't um, they don't do it too often. So unless you've got very high morale sort of quality troops who are used to that sort of war of attrition and sort of guerrilla fighting and falling back again, then they suffer quite badly if they keep going on the run. And of course, you could enhance that against uh, armies with enemy armies with cavalry who can actually follow you up and harass you in your retreat and um, maybe even have the potential of them even being cut off and actually just surrendering. Um, so if you involve that, that risk on the table, that you know if you retire off the table and something bad could happen, then that maybe encourages people to stay on the tabletop and, and maintain that fighting. Another thing you can do, of course, is you can keep the forces hidden on the tabletop and just use blinds for the battle. So you don't actually know quite what the other side's got until it's actually revealed at a closer point when they get to within a few hundred meters and it's impossible to disengage at that point there have you ever tried blinds greg oh yes we've, we've done blinds many times and uh, in our last episode we talked about a, a guadalcanal campaign that we ran sure. which which was ladder based and yeah. uh, that one of the one of my greatest memories in that campaign was that it was foggy it was night mm -hmm. and uh, all of the ships came onto the table on blinds Mm -hmm. uh, I was playing on the American side and we were determined to engage the Japanese. We had a battleship. We were, we were ready to go some heavy cruisers. And when the blinds were revealed, we found out that, uh, well, most of the blinds that we brought with us, of course, were, were lighter ships with a couple heavies. Mm -hmm. All of the Japanese blinds were heavy ships. Oh, yeah. And at that point <laughs> we were, we were so close for engagement range. There was no getting away from that yeah. table. We were decimated. Yeah. We were absolutely yeah. decimated. So, but, yeah, at blinds, that's a great suggestion to, to get around this problem of, you know, in the campaign, uh, the outnumbered or outclassed side has been outmaneuvered trying to just mm. just cut and run. Yeah, uh, but and, I think that, that element of risk, though, of just, you know, disappearing off the table, I think is, is critical that we often forget about. We, we in war gamers, we instinctively want to have our casualties given to us on the tabletop, don't we? You know, we want to be the people who cause them with our close range canister and musket fire or whatever. And uh, that's the thing that we tend to record as war gamers because that's the bit that we we take great pleasure when we roll those sort of quad sixes or something. We, we decimate our, our opponent's side. But of course, in real campaigns, that's not really where the casualties were. Um, you know, if you look at the American Civil War, you're you're the expert on this, Greg. I'm sure you can quote me some figs on this. But what's the percentage of real sort of battlefield casualties versus 
the campaigning part afterwards. Um, you know, and I think that really what we need to do is we need to be penalising armies which are, you know, retreating backwards and aren't in supply and are being harassed by the enemy because ultimately they should be suffering from, you know, higher levels of desertion and, and, and shortages of supplies and things out there as well, which means that they're less likely to be there and fighting effectively into the next battle. So, um, you know, I think trying to get that across on the tabletop is really, really important. If people do put their armies down, I think we've got to assume that they're committed towards that battle there. Um, and that they're ready to fight, you know, and if they try to disengage, there's going to be a problem with that. Um, so I think that's just the incentive. That's what you're going to put in there. You're going to make it painful for them if they do want to run away too quickly and spoil everybody else's evening. Um, that would be my gut feeling. Uh, yeah, I know. All, all some really good suggestions in there, multiple suggestions I think people could incorporate to, to get around that challenge. And um, I do want to talk more. I, I don't just want to touch on your Portsmouth campaign. I'd also like to touch on some other ones specifically. Sure. Specifically, I would love to hear a little bit about Strength and Honor, the new okay. game, the new game that you just published. We have played sure. it a couple times in our club just as one-off engagements. We haven't done yeah. anything beyond that. But I do know that there, there are some campaign elements here because I, I saw you you talking about a strength and honor campaign. Mm. Uh, what kind of options do people have to do campaigning with strength and honor? And uh, what what have you been working on? Well, at the moment, um, most of the campaigns I've been playing have been more linear-based ones. There, we've been running a Spartacus campaign um, in our playtesting. That was quite good fun. So we started off with quite a small army of uh, escaped slaves from the Third Servile War, escaping from out of uh, Kapur and uh, hiding up on Mount Vesuvius, and then sort of fighting a string of engagements in each battle. Depending on the outcome of that, they were able to recruit more and more escaped slaves to fight against them. But in return, of course, the Romans were able to mobilise more serious forces um, to deal with them. So it sort of went from the sort of local levied up legions of uh, raw militia to try and just mop up what they thought were just a few escaped runaways through to much more serious consular armies being sent down to try and deal with them. Um, and we've got a simple system there in which units can gain experience over battles and they can improve in their quality. So their discipline and things like that can go up there and their fighting skills. Um, but also they can suffer from attrition as well and in the end be um, broken down as units entirely and, and decimated if they're Romans possibly into um, and, uh, and broken up if they fail to perform in, in battle well. So if your legions lose their eagles, for example, they're quite likely to be uh, causing all kinds of merry mayhem to your legions and breaking them down if they they don't perform well on the on the tabletop in your campaign. So we played through a series about five or six linear battles for that one there, which was quite a hoot. Um, and uh, Spartacus didn't quite become quite as famous as um, his historical counterpart there. Unfortunately, he he had a series of uh, defeats inside it there, and uh, he got <laughs> to the he got to the borders of uh, northern Italy, ready to escape out, and was defeated by force there. And wasn't able to break through into the Alps and then was forced back down south again before being completely annihilated by um, the consular forces that were sent out against him by Crassus and co. So, um, yeah, that was pretty disastrous really for Spartacus, but it was quite good fun and we all enjoyed it. And um, what we liked with that was the way in which people got attached to certain units and they started to love them. And it made it even more fun that we could sort of rib them when they then ran away in the next battle or something or got completely annihilated. And, you know, <laughs> Give them a nickname. Is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. Yeah. So you had these sort of like new raw legions that were being raised up that suddenly sort of gained these uh, new epithets and sort of like tough sounding names before they were just sort of uh, taken apart. So, yeah, it was good fun. Good fun. So we're playing that as a linear campaign. But um, 
funnily enough, originally I'd, I'd started off Strength and Honor really um, because I wanted a really quick resolution system to big matrix games I'd been running. Um, and I, I don't know if you've seen inside War Games Soldier Strategy magazine, but I've written a series of different matrix games there. One was on 1688 um, on the Glorious Revolution, and I've done other ones there on. Um, uh, Boudicca's campaign um, inside Britain, her revolt inside Britain. And I played through these campaigns and really enjoyed them, but we were trying to come up with a, a quick combat solution to resolve the battles. It was a little bit more than just a, a dice chucking exercise, but a little bit less than a, uh, you know, a four hour, get every, all your figures on the table in 28 minutes and fight it out. So I came up with sort of strength and honor partly as a, a way of trying to get a fairly fast big battle solution to some of these really big battles that involved thousands and thousands of men in our matrix games. But um, I didn't have, um, I, I, I didn't really have the, uh, the, the, the means to put on a massive great big 28 mil game uh, for, um, you know, six or seven players to last for you know five or six hours in the evening uh, we wanted it to be over in a few hours and still feel like we'd had a, a satisfying finale with lots of drama inside it so that's part of the, the reason why i went down to the two mil and, and worked on strength and honor originally and then it's sort of it's ballooned into lots of other things there so i've used strength and honor as well for a sort of a, a matrix games um have you seen any matrix games at all before greg no, tell uh, tell tell me and tell everybody listening uh, what what's the format of a matrix game? How does that compare to so far? We've been focusing our discussion on the the linear ladder style versus the sure. open the open sandbox okay. map. Uh, what's yeah. uh, um, so, how, where does I mean, this fall? In sort of matrix game, normally what happens is uh, it's this idea designed by um, a, a, a chap over over your neck of the woods actually called Chris Engel. Um, and the idea behind it is that each of the commanders is given like a, a character, like a role play sort of um, persona in which they've got to um, sort of fulfill the brief of that character. And in the case of the campaigns over on those Matrix games, what they've got to do is they've got to, in each turn, they've got to present an argument of what they'd like to be able to do, normally with their forces of troops. And then they've got to try and justify why they should be able to do that with three arguments. And one person plays as the GM and they uh, rate the arguments depending on how convincing they are, um, how persuasively they're presented, how sort of in keeping with the period they are and that kind of thing. And then a simple die six score is given that they need to achieve for the argument to become a success. So, for example, you might say, right, OK, I'm uh, I'm. I don't know, the Emperor Tiberius and I wish to march with my six legions from Rome to um, Pompeii or something. And uh, I suppose you'd get given something like, right, I need an argument to do that. Well, we're going to be marching along Roman roads and therefore they're straight and they're prepared for the Roman army to march down them. Uh, my troops are used to force marching every day. And currently it's summertime and my troops are well equipped and well supplied. And therefore the GM might say, well, it's a fairly easy a chance of that taking place there. And, you know, you need a two up or something to achieve that on a die six. And if you roll a two up, then that, that action then takes place and it, it occurs. And then each of the players then takes it in turn to put forward their argument and you can then move around your different units on a map um, to see what's happening. But it obviously creates a fair amount of friction because at various times people come up with stupider suggestions about things or less convincing arguments that don't seem quite so persuasive. And just occasionally, of course, the odd bit of friction happens because somebody rolls a one or something and that argument then doesn't take place. So it leads to all kinds of interesting sort of tactical situations and getting people to really think and justify why they're able to do certain activities. 
Um, and, and that's a really effective way of getting um, the sort of macro scale big campaigns working without worrying too much about things like uh, counting up the number of um, uh, supplies you've got in, you know, in the number of carts and horses and the amount of shot you've got, because people can then build that into their arguments inside the game as well. Um, to sort of impact or effect on the different moves or the different decisions and actions that the commanders want to take. And then when you get to a combat in the in the past, in a lot of Matrix games, it's just simply resolved by a simple dice six roll or a couple of dice maybe, and the GM will maybe give uh, odds in favour of one side or the other, um, depending on the circumstances and which different arguments maybe they've presented. So, for example, if someone's in a prepared position with a superior force, they're likely to be able to sort of win a, a victory over maybe a smaller, um, less well-prepared and less well-equipped force that's trying to attack them, for example. Um, so it's quite an interesting sort of way of getting a quick resolution to a campaign. And you can also do it in a way in which, um, if you did it online, for example, or inside people in different rooms, you could do it without other people knowing what the other forces are doing. So you can move around the forces on, on a map, which is central to the GM, while the other players don't actually know quite what's going on with the other um, commanders until the GM tells them what's going on. So um, it's quite a nice little system. It's very, very fast. It, it captures a lot of the um, the problems with um, big campaigns, I think, where they get bogged down in the minute of um, um, keeping track of all your logistics and all your troops and things and, and simplifies it to something which is really all about what the players think are important and what would they like to argue about. Um, and it, it makes a very nice streamlined little system for, for campaigning with. Um, so I wanted a way of getting those big battles at the end of it. And strength and honor really was my sort of my solution, which hopefully is a sort of a fairly elegant way of playing out a big battle with lots of legions aside in maybe an hour and a half to two hours, which even after a few hours of uh, playing around on a, a matrix game for you know a, an hour and a half of gaming that we can still get a game in by the end of a club evening and feel like we've played a, a big campaign and had a big decisive finale battle at the end of it um, with a, with a great resolution. That's the aim anyway. Well, it's it. I think it certainly meets that aim. I mean, the games that we have played have all been under two hours, which honestly, for any tabletop war game, is is fairly rare. Uh, so I I think you I think you nailed it uh, in that sense. Um, before we wrap up, Mark, I would love to have you maybe distill one or two of your most important tips to uh, to to gamers who are thinking about running or designing a map based campaign. Um, Go ahead and okay. help. Sure. Can, can you help them avoid any pitfalls or? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, obvious, the obvious pitfalls are uh, campaigns have gone too long without a clear uh, ending in sight. And I realised that, you know, you could recreate the entire Wars of the Roses. And I've tried to do it using Kingmaker and uh, the old Kingmaker board game, if you remember that. And invariably, you know, that it just keeps going on and on and on until players get tired and bored of it there. So having a clear objective for each of the players, I think, is going to be really important. And it doesn't necessarily mean you've got to wipe out and annihilate the other side. It can be something much more limited in terms of the big strategic picture. Um, but I think that's quite important. Um, in terms of um, movement uh, around on it there, I think players want to feel like they're getting somewhere rather than sort of moving three miles every week and putting that down the map and moving a little uh, flag around there. So the more you can do, I think, to sort of speed up that movement around so you do get some engagements nice and early on and a sense that, um, uh, you know, you're into the action fairly quickly. I think that's fairly important. Um, uh, so I, I'd encourage that. Uh, I'd also, yeah, I would just try and keep the bookkeeping to a minimum as well. That would be the other thing I'd try to do. I know that um, they always say that um, uh, 
in terms of war gamers, uh, the amateurs enjoy the tactical and strategic side to it, and the professionals enjoy the logistics. But you know, we're doing this for the fun of it, aren't we? So let's focus now on on the, on the tactics and the strategy. And um, you know, a lot of things like uh, the you know the logistics of your forces and things. Let's keep it to a minimum. You know, keep it simple. We don't need to be sitting there recording how many uh, rounds of shot we've got left there. You know, with each of our different units, I think that minute is just going to switch a lot of players off there and get it going very, very slowly. So unless your aim of your game is something based on the experience of a quartermaster, it is under one handing out bullets to people, um, I would try to avoid that as well. <laughs> I have been accused in some games in our club of <laughs> of being a little too much of a quartermaster, I think. Well, you know, once in a while, if that's if that's your intention of your game, if that's the purpose of the game, then that's absolutely fine. But most players want to be a general, I think, probably of some sort. They want to be in command of things and they want to roll some dice and have some fun and make big decisions, don't they? So, yes. um, you know, give, give those players those roles there. I mean, the other thing I'd encourage people to do is have, um, you know, characters who they've got to try and play to. Um, that maybe limit what they can do and encourage them to act in a particular way. Um, and I think that really helps to bring the events to life. Um, also, just having a GM who's willing to improvise a little bit and is well read on the period and is willing to throw in a few periods, uh, uh, random events and that kind of thing there to, to, to add character to the campaign is always good fun as well. Uh, great, great advice. Um, if If a listener would like to connect with you or see more of your war games or, or follow you online. Uh, what's a, what's a good way for them to oh, find you on social um, media? Yeah. Um, I, well, I've got the, uh, the, the official strength and honor, uh, Facebook page, which I'm on all the time. If you want to talk about strength and honor, I'm also on, um, Twitter as well. And my handle that is, um, I think it's Mark Backhouse 29, I think, um, on Twitter. So, um, I'm always on there. So feel free to give me a follow and, um, chuck me a message on there and I, I normally reply back to some things on there um otherwise um, i write a lot for wss magazine so feel free to contact wss and um I, I tend to write a lot of war games campaigns for that as well so if you've got any really good ideas or some uh innovative solutions to campaigning i'm always all ears for that you you are indeed very prolific in WSS magazine. I'm always seeing an article in there from you, so uh, that's that's cool. Obviously, you've got a pretty good relationship with them. Uh, did you check out the uh, event? Uh, were you following that uh, this past weekend, the Lardy event? The Arnhem event, yeah. I've been um, rather cool. jealous, really, of what's going on there. Um, uh, it looked incredible. I, yeah, it did look incredible. I saw some of it at, at Colors uh, a couple of weekends back. I saw um, Richard, uh, sorry, Richard Skinner, no, Nick Skinner, even. Mm -hmm. uh, is a combination of both of them. Yeah, Nick Skinner's um, table there, which was absolutely fantastic. It was next door to me at Colours. Uh, I, I still haven't played it yet. Though. I've, I've seen it at a load of shows and I keep wanting to play it, but I'm always running something my own. It's a problem of um, yeah, having my own game that's quite popular, unfortunately. <laughs> that's a good problem to have. A well, it sort problem. of is, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to go over and, and have a play of it at some point there. It looks too good not to play, doesn't it? So, um, yeah, I've been following it. It's been fantastic to see that through and, uh, and really exciting to see how the different tables are actually so close to each other in the real battle there. They're all about 300 metres apart from each other in the, in the real, um, real sure. strategic situation. So, actually, you could literally walk out of the, the hotel there and, and see each of those different battlefields and see where the fighting actually was taking place. So, um, what a great way of, of uh, bringing that alive to members of the public and to the gamers as well. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, thanks so much for the chat. This was great. Yeah, great to catch up, Craig. Really this nice was fantastic. And, um, keep up the good work.
thank you. I'd love to do this again um, and maybe do one where uh, we've got a series called 15 Questions where we interview authors of games uh, about okay. their, the games they've written. So um, I would love to set one up where we could do a, a 15 Questions about strength and honor and, you know, just hear about your design philosophy and stuff like that. Awesome. Yeah, look forward to it. Fantastic. Well, you have a great evening. Thank you so much for taking the time after yeah. a hard day. And uh, I'll be in touch. Yeah, cheers, Greg. Thanks ever so much, mate. Take care. Yeah. See Thanks, you now. Cheers, listeners. Bye. Um, Miles, Tony, thank you so much for uh, the conversation, the two-parter that we did on how to design war game campaigns. It was, it's always fun. Always Excellent. a pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you, guys. Always a pleasure. Look forward to the next campaign. <laughs> Whatever it may be. All right. <laughs>